Hey everyone, I'm Beth Vecchioni and welcome to Frontline Stories of Change. So I'm a social worker, a founder and a director of social enterprise Care to Dance and now I'm so excited to be the podcast host for this series. You'll hear from some amazing individuals and organisations who share the same mission around bringing about social change and who really want to make a big difference to children and families. They will share their stories and they give some great advice. So I hope you can join in the conversation and we can learn together along the way. In this episode, I speak to best-selling author and mental health campaigner, Rachel Kelly. In her early 30s, Rachel was diagnosed with severe depression after suffering two major depressive episodes. They have since become defining events in her life and she draws upon these and her life experiences to support others. She talks about mental health and identity, whether a diagnosis is helpful for recovery and how to approach difficult conversations about suicide. Finally, Rachel speaks about the benefits of healthy eating and shares her favourite recipe from her book, The Happy Kitchen, Good Mood Food. Hey Rachel, how are you doing today? You okay? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, really impressed by what you've been doing and I sort of took a look and well done you. So you're you're a social worker by background. Yeah, so I'm a social worker full time and then I've also set up my own um, social enterprise called Care to Dance, which children um, teaches children in care to dance. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I was thinking about you actually because there was this piece in the paper on Saturday about um, a woman who'd um, been brought up in care and just like got her first novel deal and it was so inspiring that's incredible absolutely you hear so many inspirational stories um, as a social worker but just also day to day from children um, who maybe have been in care or leaving care and what they've achieved and it's just it's incredible yeah. and the young people within my group as well are just absolutely inspirational We've had a really good time um, sort of talking and thinking about what um, what we'd like to talk about today because you've done so much good work around mental health and um, oh, and you. I've read a few of your articles, which was really interesting as well. Um, and I was wondering whether maybe you could share a bit about your story and what's motivated you through your journey to where you are now. Uh, it was sort of born a personal experience, really, lived experience. Um, you've got to go all the way back to 1997. So in 1997, I was working as a journalist. I was working at the Times newspaper um, and I was in the newsroom, had two small children and um, same husband who's still around. And um, I seemed to be okay. I seemed to be managing, but it was a very stressful job, uh, quite long hours, very much 24-7 already, you know, newspapers sort of work at the weekend and stuff. And um, one, one night I couldn't get to sleep. And I'd had bits of insomnia before, but the insomnia was different that night because with the insomnia came some quite alarming physical symptoms and my heart rate speeded up. And I remember feeling very nauseous, like I had to throw up and I was having all these catastrophic thoughts like, you know, if I don't get to sleep, I can't get to work. If I can't get to work, then I won't be able to pay the bills and lose the house and lose the children and um, just these very sort of frightening thoughts. And um, it went on all night, but I was quite this sort of supposedly quite high functioning person. So the next morning I thought, you know, refast an activity to its normal timetable, you know, breakfast at breakfast time, a lunch at lunch time, dine at dinner time, get back to work, get back to normal. Um, but all the symptoms stayed and I was just really feeling so ill. 
And this went on for for two days, three nights effectively. And um, by the third day, I was obviously really very unwell. And I'd stopped being able to eat. I was hardly being able to drink. I was just in this sort of terrible state. And um, my husband got me to the doctors and I thought I was going to be just Actually, I thought I was going to be seeing a cardiologist because I thought I was maybe having a heart attack. And the doctor sat me down. He said, no, he said, I'm a psychiatrist. He said, these are classic signs of like an anxiety-driven major depressive episode. Um, And yeah, and so it proved. Um, I went to hospital. um, I became very suicidal, uh, not because I didn't have a good life, but because I felt so ill. And um, I was given a lot of medication and... I was ill, really ill for around six months, but I got back to normal, normal. And um, I went back to work and um, sort of shut the whole topic down. So this is 97. So if you think stigma's Mm. bad now, you can imagine what it was like in 97. Just didn't want to talk about it. And um, I thought the whole thing would go away. Um, And my luck did hold for a bit, a couple of years. I crashed again. I had another serious major depressive episode. I was incredibly ill again. I was ill for the best part of two years. Um, I know it was two years because through that period, I didn't do a school run. I feel a bit emotional Mm -hmm. now. But, um, yeah, anybody who's got children or, you know, you'll know that, like, being able to pick up your children from schools... (laughs) My son was given this prize for bravery for like I'd not been able to pick him up for a couple of years. And I think it was then that I really thought, okay, um, I've got to look into this whole topic of depression, anxiety, mental health, um, what's really going on. Um, Because I was so worried I'd be ill again because the pattern in major depressive episodes is if you've had two, you're likely to have a third. So sort of this was about 10 years ago now. I, I then decided to sort of become almost like a, a mental health mm-hmm. correspondent, like investigating uh, what's underneath this, you know, what, what, what goes wrong when we're mentally unwell, what can we do about it? Uh, what are the strategies that can look after ourselves? Cause I'd never say no to medication and I've used it a lot over the years, but I also felt that, you know, if I could find other ways to look after myself and that's led to this whole story really. And I've, I've sort of shared what I've learned with in my books and then I became really interested in working with the mental health charities because I think in my world, it was quite unusual really to be talking about mental health in a way, because I think in some ways, the sort of professional world, sort of, I don't know, journalists, people, their own businesses, um, I don't know, accountants, bankers, it was like, you were thought to be fine. Like, why would you have a problem? You didn't have a mental health problem. And so I think that's why the, partly why the charities became so important to me because I began to work alongside other people and connect and feel I wasn't alone. And there were, there was a tribe and other people and I learned from them. And Mm -hmm. so actually now it's, it's, I feel in a very good place in the sense that I've been so enriched and learned so much. And yeah, that's really where it's all come from. Um, so very much personal experience. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I think from what you're reading from what you've written as well in the, um, in lots of different articles, it's it's really interesting the way you describe it and the way. So one one of the articles that you wrote for the Guardian, um, you wrote that the diagnosis felt a bit like a life sentence, and it can often define you. And I thought that was really interesting um, around how you how you felt towards the diagnosis potentially. And I'm wondering how helpful you do feel like a diagnosis can be for someone who maybe is struggling with their mental health. Um, or do you feel like that is potentially generalizing someone's experience with one named condition? 
Um, I think it's a really, really complicated and nuanced area, and it does bring up a lot of the complexity of mental health issues. So I think it's really important to stress my own personal experience on this. Um, When you're really unwell, um, a diagnosis is actually essential because it's the language of the professionals. And one thing that I took a while to really understand is that you can get help and you do need to get help. And if you're working through the NHS, you're not really going to get anywhere without a diagnosis, especially if you need psychiatric help and you may have to go to hospital. Psychologists work in a slightly different way. They sometimes don't work so much with a diagnosis. They actually try and sort of pull out what some of the symptoms are. So for example, with a psychologist, instead of having a diagnosis of anxiety, you they might say, oh, okay, well, we can see you're having problems sleeping or you're getting panic attacks. Let's work at that particular topic. Mm-hmm. Now, for some people, that's a really good approach to sort of take it almost like problem by problem and like, let's look at that and see how we can sort it. Um, I think the the problem is this sort of, as I say, the sense of life sentence, which is that I think it's sometimes easy to to forget in the world of mental health that people do recover. Actually with serious depression, I I think the rates of recovery are around 70% um, Royal College of Psychiatrists. So it's quite high recovery rates. And I, I think the thing about a diagnosis is sometimes you can feel it just sort of goes on forever. Um, and it's not just, um, I've been given a diagnosis of serious depression. It's like, I am seriously depressed and that is me. That is my identity. So I suppose where I've ended up is that if you can cope with a diagnosis by thinking it's part of me, you know, I have a, I have a tendency to, to suffer from this thing called, you know, serious depression or serious anxiety, but it's not the whole of me. Um, so it's the difference between saying I am sad and I can feel sad. And I think that kind of sense of spaciousness and choice rather than a sort of inevitability that I will always be depressed and I am depressed. Absolutely. I think that's really interesting because it's almost like a diagnosis can be pivotal with the response you get from services with just in the nature of the system we work in. Um, But at the same time, I think it's one thing that I've um, someone, a close friend of mine who was suffering with mental health difficulties in the past. And they said to me the most helpful um, and effective thing that a psychologist has ever said to them was explaining mental health and anxiety like um, a spectrum. And when you see some people, maybe in certain times, their lives might be more, you know, on this end of the spectrum around feeling maybe more anxious. um, And, but other times in their lives, they might go back down to not feeling as anxious. And absolutely. I think that's, I think that's absolutely crucial and really nicely put because um, it's not binary. Um, And also I think with recovery, it's not like, you know, as you say, on your spectrum of naught to a hundred, if you suffer severe depression, you can come back down to functioning and being okay. Um, But, you know, you're not going to completely ever not feel sad. You know, being sad is part of human nature. So I think that softening and that, that, that sort of less catastrophic black or white, like, Exactly as you say, we've all got mental health and at some point a diagnosis may get us that that help and that support, that access treatment, but, you know, to feel of it in that more spacious way. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And and I'm thinking from a social worker point of view as well, um, when I work with children and families and they may be um, a young person or a parent or a carer struggling with their mental health and, and we really look into how the best approach is to sort of supporting them. Um, and from your point of view, do you have any advice for social workers when they're, when they're maybe working with someone who's um, suffering with uh, mental health difficulties? 
Yeah, well, I think the first thing I'd say, um, as having sort of done a lot of work myself, uh, you know, working with groups with the charities and stuff, is I think that um, social workers always have to remember that their first relationship is with themselves. And that's true for all of us. And actually to be an effective uh, carer or somebody who's helping others is that you just got to come back to feeling calm, feeling centered, feeling you know, okay yourself and looked after yourself. So your own self-care and nourishing yourself and looking after yourself and putting your own, you know, strategies into practice, whether that's like checking your thoughts with kindness or using your mindfulness or journaling or, or all the all the good psychological strategies that we know work. Um, you've got to be doing them for yourself first and, and being in that space. And I think if you come to to working with others from that sort of energetic level almost um you're you're more likely to sort of be effective and also you'll be modeling good behavior without almost even realizing it so when you're sharing ideas you know whether that's fast, you know strategies for for you know physical strategies obviously we sort of we know things like you know getting out about and exercise is really good or or whether that's psychological strategies so for example using some of the gratitude strategies or working through ways of checking worry and like where's the evidence um you know um whatever strategies you're suggesting if you model that you use them yourself and that they work um i think that's a really helpful starting point Absolutely. I think that, and you you answered my next question as well, because I was going to say to flip it on its head, <laughs> uh, what advice would you give to social workers around looking after their own mental health? If you're looking after yourself, you're in a much better place to be able to look at, like, well, to be able to support um, other people with their recovery. So absolutely, I think that's so important. And I know as a social worker, there has been a few times where, you know, so I'm a big lover for mindfulness myself. Um, and there's been quite a few times where I've suggested that to um, some people and some people like it, some people don't, but it's um, it gives me something to be able to suggest and, and, and it might be effective for them. Yeah. And I think um, I always think it's interesting that the word expert comes from the, from experience. And, and, and I think that everybody is actually very different. And, and I think that, yes, your training, your expertise is really important. But in addition, there is something that comes through very authentically when you're speaking from the heart and it's something that you really believe in. And that has a sort of a, a sort of almost like a psychic charge, a, a kind of energy to it, which is compelling. But, um, and, and I think your other point there is really well made as well, that um, just allowing this sort of um, sense of choices. So, Yes, mindfulness works for you, but but I do think, um, and if we're if we're looking at evidence again, it, it's not for everybody. Um, and and I think that sometimes in the world of mental health, people get very messianic about their approaches, and I get that because they're big believers. And you might think that's almost contradicting what I'm saying before um, about being passionate about you know your own your own sort of authenticity but but I think it's got to be combined with a sense of choice um and and I've learned that sort of going around the country and doing workshops and things is that I tend to share six or seven different strategies and I always start by saying have a go see how this feels again for some of them life-changing you know for other people it, it doesn't resonate Absolutely. And I completely agree. I think every individual is an expert of their own lives um, yeah. completely. Then, And they will know what works for them or they may be searching about what works for them and trying different things. And, and that's, you know, 
some, I mean, I know from being a social worker, some people love counselling. They find it really helpful, but other people yeah. just say that they don't, it doesn't work for them. And that's absolutely okay. You know, it's not yeah. just a, yeah. a one way thing. This is how, this is what we're going to do because this is the answer. It's not like that. It's yeah. searching what works for them. And, and actually, I think that's so important because sometimes people feel worse. And, and we know that on some of the CBT studies, cognitive behavioral therapy, that, that if you do it and you've got all these expectations, it's going to work. And actually, probably it only works really well for around 50% of people. And then the, the people that it doesn't work for, they think, oh, my God, you know, there's no hope for me. I'm a failure. Mm. Another interesting point that I think you raised earlier on is around the sense of connectivity, talking to other people and, and building that network with other people and knowing that you're not alone if you're, if you're struggling with your mental health. And do you have any good examples where people have had a, space, a safe space to talk and connect with other people who may be going through similar difficulties? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky at the moment because obviously we're in we're such a different time. I mean, the, the things, the sort of the, the cafes that Action for Happiness works with the happiness cafes I've done a bit of work with them and and they're absolutely fabulous um I, I did an event down in Brighton uh actually it was a bit before the lockdown but it's it's a it's a cafe in Brighton action for happiness is a great charity they they have a sort of slot every week anybody can drop in and they sometimes have someone come in like me like do a workshop or they just sort of sat sit around and chat and connect sometimes they use the action for happiness like program of sort of again building up a toolkit of good mental health strategies so i think they they're absolutely lovely i know with my work with with sane i mean that that's i suppose more relevant now because that's online certainly there's the sane helpline and i've done some work with them and i mean that's that's people who are finding life difficult and just calling in and it's sort of on a, a bit of a different level to something like the samaritans which is obviously incredible but it's sort of like you can have a chat you can call in and I think that can be a lovely way for people to connect and feel less alone and there's somebody really sympathetic on the end of the line I think that's that's sort of answered my next question as well a lot around sort of advice for social workers who might be working with parents or children young people who maybe feel quite isolated especially at the moment Um, and and I think really using those resources such as SANE and um, charities who are doing loads of amazing work with um, people to really um, use that and encourage that for, you know, people to try? I mean, I think at the moment, I mean, um, uh, there's a wonderful um, NHS psychologist I've been working with quite closely called Dr. Carla Croft. And we were chatting about how all the rule books have been torn up. So normally you would have said to, to, to sort of families and young people finding life hard, well, you know, don't spend all day on your phone. Because, you know, we all know phones are not, you know, you, you, you're you not connecting in real life and you're not doing all the things you should be doing for your well-being. But, you know, she, she was just saying that actually, you know, phones can be a real lifeline for young people at the moment. That is for a lot of people their only way of connecting. So maybe it's sort of allied to what we were talking about earlier. Again, is a sort of um, a spaciousness, a flexibility, a little bit of a you know, let's just see what's working right now because it, it is a very unusual time. So I'm going to move on a little bit. Um, I'm wondering if you had any examples um, from different charities that you support around best practice when approaching a conversation around suicide and how we can break that um, taboo and, and talk about it. Yeah, well, probably the Samaritans have, have got st- still got the very best guidelines on, on you know, protocols around talking, uh, you know, to somebody who's feeling suicidal. I think my own learning was that initially 
I was frightened that somehow talking about it would might make it worse. So even if you said to somebody, are you feeling suicidal? That would somehow prompt them to be suicidal. But I remember from my own experience of being hospitalized in a psychiatric hospital and feeling suicidal, that actually it was a relief to acknowledge that, that I was feeling suicidal and that actually that was part of my normality and that I, I thought that that was perfectly possible and okay. You might imagine that it, it, it's such a scary thing, the idea that somebody is suicidal, that you shouldn't go near the topic, but actually it's okay to just say, um, you know, in, in, the, in the course of that conversation, um, if they start saying they are feeling suicidal. It's okay to talk about feeling suicidal. That is not going to make them more likely to commit suicide. Um, there's other really good guidelines about um, just really simple uh, open questions. So not, are you feeling bad? Yes, I'm feeling bad. But more like, how are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling really this and I'm feeling that. I like those questions, like, because everyone works differently. Everyone is an individual. And some people like to be asked certain questions, so there's an open question. Some people like just to, um, different approaches. So asking them, what can I do to help you um, with our conversation? Uh, what can I do to, um, what sort of questions do you like me asking? Um, yeah. And what sort yeah. of questions do you not? And I do think it's very important that um, a little bit like, you know, we were chatting about what social workers could do to, you know, like looking after themselves, that if you are having one of those conversations that it's really hard to stay centered mm-hmm. and calm and in your own connectedness and your own space and just to sort of, you know, to be alongside someone, but not to be dragged in and, 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 and sort of overly upset because obviously you're most helpful if you can stay and model a kind of, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to be okay. It's going to be calm, even a bit of humor. I remember that um, my husband, I remember when I was in hospital and um, he he used to say, okay, well, um, let, let's put all your worries in order. So we do worry number one. Well, you know, whatever this, um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm never going to get well again. I'm never going to see my children. I'm never going to recover. And so, and we'd go all the way down and we'd get to about number 15 and it would be like, I've got a spot. And he'd go, right, good. Well, we got to number 15. You've got a spot. Fantastic. And I remember laughing. And of course, laughter, if you think about it, it's a little bit back to mindfulness. It's like mm. when you're laughing, you're only in the moment. You're not in mm-hmm. the past and you're not in the future. And often people who are desperate, they're full of regret, terribly anxious about the future. So if we, we can come back to the present. So look, it may not be easy to introduce an element of humor but and, and that's that's a, a big ask mm-hmm. if you're having a conversation with someone who's suicidal. But I think it's something to bear in mind. It's it, it more about keeping your own centre and, and your own calm. That's a you know, that's a lovely piece of advice, and I think I'll definitely take that on board. We mentioned it earlier about nutritional and the power of eating healthy. Um, and it's sort of drawing from your book, uh, The Happy Kitchen: Good Mood Food. Yeah. Um, and I was just love to hear a bit more from you about why it's important to you um, around eating healthy and why you think it's really important to keep mentally well. Um, it was about four or five years ago and I went to see my GP to sort of like discuss my ongoing um, sort of mental health really. And, I, you know, I was, I was not suffering severe depression, but I was still quite anxious and I still had little pockets of bad depression. And, um, and I was very much using medication. 
and I was using some of the mindfulness and I'd done a bit of cognitive behavioral therapy. So kind of quite the standard approaches. And then as I was leaving the appointment, she said, what about happy foods? And I said, well, what are happy foods? And she, she mentioned three and she actually wrote them down on her prescription pad. So she said, dark green leafy vegetables, or, uh, well, and then she said, orange fish. And then she said, dark chocolate. And I said, oh, oh, gosh, that sounds interesting. I really like dark chocolate. And she said, yeah, she said, this is a new field. Um, you know, we're quite early days in terms of research, but it's sort of nutritional psychiatry. It's like using food to affect mood. And you might as well have a go and, you know, maybe add it into your toolkit. And I said, oh, that's fantastic. Well, could you tell me more about it? She said, well, no, not really, because um, a GP on the NHS only gets about seven hours training in nutrition. And she said, it's a bit beyond my pay grade. I don't really know about it. And I said, oh, anyway, so being the sort of journalist type and, you know, quite intrigued, um, I teamed up with this nutritional therapist called Alice McIntosh. And anyway, it led to a sort of four, four year journey with her. And we put the conclusions really into the happy kitchen. And, um, I just found it so powerful because I think it was about the idea there was something I could do for myself. So I didn't need to go and see a therapist. I didn't need to go and see a psychiatrist. I didn't need to go on any kind of course. I mean, as it happened, I was working with Alice, but, but cooking is something anybody can pick up straight away and make some of these changes and sort of adjust their diet. And actually what became really exciting is I started running good mood food workshops um, based on our book. So we took all the main symptoms of anxiety and depression. So we took like low mood and feeling anxious, um, not sleeping, lack of mental clarity, uh, you know, eating for comfort, all the things that I'd experienced. And then we looked at around 400 nutritional studies and like what worked, what didn't work. And then I started putting these into these workshops. And what was really interesting, the food ideas, I could just see people light up because even within in a week, like um, they would come back the next week and you'd see an improvement in their mood. So I'd be sending people away with some very simple ideas like, you know, eat more of the oily fish. And I know it is a topic how expensive fish is. So we would be talking about canned fish and even a tin of sardines and improving gut health. And that was why the GP said the dark green leafy vegetables and probiotics and prebiotics, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, a week later, people would be coming back feeling energized and feeling good. And, and I just saw these changes and I just became more and more keen on, you know, this is a lovely thing. And, and actually, you know, you, you, you can, you can do this. You've, you've got to eat three or four times a day. So why not add it in and be something that, that is helping nourish your brain? That sounds so interesting. And I think it sounds so empowering just the way you described it as in you, you have the power over this. You can, you have the power. You don't have to rely on anyone or go anywhere. And I also think part of the (laughs) process of learning to cook as well. And I know with a lot of children, young people who we work with, um, and especially care leavers as well, we support them in learning to cook and that sort of independent skills and they love it. Yeah, that's so nice. And and one thing I found in the workshops that's really interesting is that um, people can have these side-by-side conversations. Uh, so, you, you know, you'll be in a, um, this was up at St. Charles's Hospital in their kitchen and you'd notice that that people working side-by-side would be having different conversations to what they could have face-to-face um, and it, it, you know, it, it elicited a kind of um, a sharing and a, and a kind of an ability to to talk, but not in such a stigmatized way. Not like, oh, I've got a big problem. I've got to see a counsellor. Actually, I'm I'm just cooking. Everybody cooks. That's okay. But I can have a chat as well. 
Absolutely. And that links really, really lovely with social work and the work because the way I like to, um, I, I don't often just go and see a young person and sit down and chat. We all usually yeah. do something, whether it's playing football or going for a walk or because it's, it's a lot nicer for, and it's a lot, they, it helps them to feel a lot more at ease when talking um, and a bit less forced for them yeah. as well. It, so just as a final thought, um, it would be great to hear from you what the, your most recommended recipe in your book is. Probably if I had to do like a recipe when I come in and I'm really tired, I'd probably do my own hummus. So delicious and it's healthy, it's nutritious, it's not a sugary snack, which will see your sugar levels rising, which will get your mood swinging around and you, you know, you feel good and it literally takes all of two minutes. It's, it's one of our first recipes in the book. That sounds great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Rachel. It's been so interesting talking to you. It's a, it's a definite passion of my a passion of mine talking about mental health and how we can oh. do things differently and how we can learn from each other and building on that. So yeah, thank you so much. Well, listen, I've learned from you, and actually, we're doing what we said. It's by connecting and sharing that we're both feeling a, a really cheerful. I've gone all goosebumps. Absolutely, I'm all cheerful. definitely. 